All right. We're in Luke chapter 20. Tough crowd this morning. You're going to make me earn it, aren't you? All right, that's fine. I'm up for it. I'll try. Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 44 is our text as we're studying through the gospel of Luke, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. Some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection came to Jesus and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he dies without children... His brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as wife and he died childless. Then the third took her and in like manner, the seven also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore. For they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. And he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Let's pray together. Lord, we always thank you for your answers to these difficult questions and issues. We thank you for your questions, Lord, which no one could really answer. Yet they were simple. It wasn't that they couldn't answer them. They didn't want to, Lord, because to answer them would bring them into uh, Bring them face to face and confront them with their need for you as their savior. Lord, many of us here in this room, perhaps most of us, we have come before you and asked for the forgiveness of our sins. You've saved us, caused us to be born again, put your spirit within us. We're on our way to heaven and we thank you for it. And we want to learn about living now, how to more appropriate those things that you've given to us and for us so that we can make a difference in our world. And Lord, there's probably one or two or a few here who don't know you. Well, they know who you are in a sense, Lord. They know your name, but they've never really confessed that they're sinners in need of your saving grace. They're not living for you, Lord. I pray that the hardness of their hearts would be broken today as your gospel, Lord, penetrates. And like a seed, Lord, that oftentimes can break hard concrete or asphalt, Lord, and push through. I I pray that there would be the seeding of the word, the watering of that seed, and perhaps even a harvesting today in the lives of one or many. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. There's been a lot of talk about how Muslim suicide bombers expect to go immediately to heaven because of their sacrifice, where they will receive 72 virgins to satisfy their physical pleasures for all eternity. Well, to be fair, the Koran never states that the faithful are allotted exactly 72 virgins, although the provision of virgins is alluded to in several places. The specific information comes from some traditional sayings outside of the Koran that are traced back to Muhammad. Called Hadith, one such saying goes like this. The least reward for the people of heaven is 80,000 servants. And 72 wives. Mormons believe that marriages can be ritually sealed in their temple ceremonies so that they will last forever in heaven. After death, you and your wife or multiple wives become the gods of your own planet and fill countless millions of worlds with your offspring. By the way, just as a footnote, I don't know how they get women to become Mormons. (laughs) 
That doesn't sound like heaven to me, ladies, but Muslim or Mormon, it is essentially the playboy philosophy. You either get a playboy mansion if you're a Muslim or a playboy planet if you're a Mormon. The Muslims are wrong. The Mormons are wrong. I can confidently declare that they are wrong because Jesus very clearly stated those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Suddenly we're not interested in Muslim or Mormon errors. We're intrigued about our own future in heaven. Did Jesus really mean that we won't be married in heaven? Stay with me as we work through these verses. Marriage is just one part of the greater teaching. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, you limit living if you live as if there were no resurrection. And number two, you unlimit living if you live forward to resurrection. First of all, in verses 27 through 33, you limit living if you live as if there were no resurrection. On their way to getting married, a young couple is involved in a fatal car crash. The couple finds themselves sitting outside the pearly gates waiting for St. Peter to process them into heaven. While waiting, they begin to wonder, could they possibly still get married in heaven? When St. Peter shows up, they asked him. St. Peter says, I don't really know. This is the first time anyone has asked. Let me go and find out. The couple sat and waited for an answer. They actually waited for a couple of months. While they waited, they began to discuss that if they were allowed to get married, should they get married with the eternal aspect of it all? What if it doesn't work, they wondered. Are we stuck together forever? After yet another month went by, St. Peter finally returned looking somewhat bedraggled. But he informed them, yes, you can get married in heaven. Great, said the couple, but we were just wondering, what if things don't work out? Could we also get a divorce in heaven? St. Peter shrugged his shoulders in discouragement. What's wrong, said the bewildered couple. St. Peter said, it took me three months to find a priest up here. Do you have any idea how long it'll take me to find a lawyer? <laughs> True story. Now, the Sadducees did not believe in life after death. They did not believe in a future judgment that would result in either eternal reward or punishment. They rejected all of that and taught that everything in life is really up to you. How did they arrive at these beliefs? Their beliefs were probably shaped by their behavior, which is just the opposite of what you want to do. You want your behavior to be shaped by what you believe, but they had it backwards because they had become the wealthy ruling class and were in control of the temple. They were materialistic, enjoying the things of the world. Belief in an afterlife in which you would be rewarded for your simple and sacrificial living on earth was contrary to their wealthy materialistic lifestyle. To support their lifestyle of the rich and famous, they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. And they claimed that nowhere in those books was there any talk of life after death. This life was all that they were living for. Now, whether they will admit it or not, most people in our culture are Sadducees to some degree. Our culture is certainly materialistic. If people believe in God, they don't live as if he is involved in their affairs unless it is to blame him for some difficulty or disaster. People are unsure of an afterlife unless pressed for an opinion, and then they generally reject any notion of eternal punishment. This life is therefore all that they are really living for. You are dealing with Sadducees every day. They may not openly say that there is no resurrection, but they do try to minimize the evidence of Jesus and his resurrection in your life. They might attack you verbally or even physically or your testimony. 
you can learn a lot from Jesus' strategy for answering them. And so some of the Sadducees, in verse 27, who deny that there's a resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, it's true. Moses did teach this in God's law. It was called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage is the practice of a woman marrying one of her dead husband's brothers after her husband's untimely death in order to continue his line and to protect his inheritance. It is a necessary practice among people with a tribal or clan structure who do not allow you to marry outside of your own people group. Obviously, without a descendant, you're going to lose your property, lose your rights, lose your name in that group of people. Leveret marriage already existed in societies before God gave Moses the law. It was adopted as part of God's law to keep the children of Israel separate from the surrounding nation. So don't blame God for it. It's weird, I know. But this is a practice uh, in different cultures, in different situations uh, for many, many centuries. And it was practiced and taught in the law of Moses. And so the Sadducees present a case of leveret marriage from uh, that agrees with the scripture, but it's an improbable case. And they're doing it to ridicule the idea that there could be a future resurrection. They're saying basically, look, if if we know this is true, that there's this practice of marrying your dead brother's widow. But if it's true, it seems to make any thought of a future resurrection ridiculous. And so they say in verse 29, there were seven brothers and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as wife and he died childless. And the third took her and in like manner, the seven also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Now, personally, I think she was poisoned by the eighth brother, but that's just my opinion. That's why I titled this message, The Corpse Grooms. Or... For those of you who remember, Sadducee bride for seven brothers. <laughs> now, everyone agreed that leveret marriage was taught in God's word. The Sadducees argued that any thought of resurrection from the dead to live forever in heaven was contradicted by leveret marriage because you'd never be able to sort out these relationships. How could you? Who should she be married to? Of course, if I'm any of those seven guys, I don't want to be married to her at all. But, but, you know, it seemed to create a logical problem. And so in verse 33, therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. Now, this question always worked for them. Whenever they argued with the scribes or the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection, they always pulled out the seven dead brothers as their famous proof text. No one had ever answered this question to their satisfaction. Now, before we see Jesus answer, I want to tell you that the unbelievers that you know, many of whom really are closet Sadducees, usually have one big question that seems to work for them. Their one big question might be something stupid like, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Or their one big question might be sincere, like, if God is a God of love, why is there so much suffering in the world? Whether their question is stupid or sincere, most of the time they are related to our limited experience with living on the earth. We're thinking about heaven but our only frame of reference is our life on earth. And we begin to think that heaven is just going to be life on earth only a little bit better. It'll be life on earth with no mortgage, with no uh, gasoline prices, with no disease. And, and so whatever I'm doing on earth, I'll, I'll be like that in heaven, only it'll be better somehow. 
And so the Sadducees come along and they say, well, you know, seven brides for uh, or seven brothers for the bride. And so who's going to be married to her in eternity? And Jesus takes it to a whole nother level. Jesus answered and said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. And so Jesus answer really is that living on earth is limited living and you can't argue from the lesser to the greater. It is limited by death. But what if death was defeated once and for all? Well, then you'd live forever in a glorified body that was not subject to any of the usual limitations. And since everyone in heaven with you would also live forever, it follows that there would probably be very different social arrangements. There would be no need to have children, no need to preserve property rights, No need need to maintain tribal distinctions. If there was marriage at all, it would at least be very different than it is on the earth. Well, death has been defeated once and for all. It was defeated by Jesus when he rose from the dead. And because he rose, so will all those who die believing in him. Jesus arose in a glorified physical body. So will you. Then, too, you may not die. Many Christians will be alive when an event called the rapture occurs. Jesus says that he's coming back to raise the dead of the church age. And he will do it. And then at the same time, instantaneously with that, there will be Christians who are alive. And they will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and caught up together with the resurrected saints to be with the Lord in heaven. And so this is our future as believers, whether you're raised from the dead or immediately raptured and given a glorified physical body. If you are a son or daughter of that resurrection, you will be equal to the angels. Now, you will not be an angel. There is stuck in our minds, stuck in our culture, this idea That some people die and they're just not quite good enough to go to heaven. And so God sends them back as angels to affect the lives of others and to make things right. To touch people by an angel, you know, those kinds of things. It makes for great drama, wonderful television. You're weeping and crying. Oh, Michael Landon, how did you do it again? You know. I thought little house was man, but man touched by an angel. And finally, at the end, they get their wings and fly away. They become angels and they're saved. That's not going to happen. You know, Christians, we don't believe in evolution on earth. We don't believe in evolution in heaven either. Human beings are human beings. Angels are angels. Human beings do not evolve into angels someday. They're totally separate. And so he doesn't mean you're going to be an angel. You will be like the unfallen angels in certain aspects of living. It's a comparison to help you get a handle on what unlimited life in heaven will be like in a glorified body. Angels have powers that we now lack, both physical and mental. They can no longer sin. They perfectly do God's will. They worship the Lord continually and they are not married. You will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Now, what, is, what do you think that means? I think that's what it means. There's, people are all over the place because we don't want to admit that's what it means. And there's different ways that people have of handling these words so that, well, here's what was really meant. and He means that you won't have any leveret marriage in heaven. But Jesus just says, look, you're thinking about things completely wrong because you're limited to the earth and your understanding of the earth. In heaven, there isn't going to be any marriage like that. So if you've had or had a marriage made in heaven... It saddens you to think that you and your spouse will no longer be married in eternity. If you have a marriage that is hell on earth, this is your life verse. I mean, you you just, I mean, you're excited this morning. But don't admit it. 
You won't be married to one another or marrying others in heaven. You will be married to Jesus. Now, in describing your relationship with Jesus, the Apostle Paul says you are currently engaged to him. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You are described as his bride and he the bridegroom. When Jesus returns for us, it is described in terms of a wedding complete with a wedding feast or a reception. Now, I'll go on record as saying that being married to Jesus sounds strange to us. Our problem, though, is that because of our earthly limitations, we focus too much on the physical aspects of marriage. For example, when God married Adam and Eve, he said that the two should become one flesh. We mostly think of one flesh as having an intimate physical relationship with our spouse. The truth is, one flesh has a lot more to do with spiritual unity than with sensual pleasures. When God brought Eve to Adam, it was to provide him with a companion, he said, who would complete him, not a sex slave to fulfill him. Remember the Muslim and Mormon versions of heaven? They are all about sex. I mean, I don't don't want to be vulgar, but that's really what they're about. Hey, go blow up as many people as you can. You'll get a free pass to heaven. Waiting for you there are 72 virgins. What do you think you're going to do with them? Hey, Mormon, get sealed in the temple. And, And by the way, I'm talking, Mormon marriage is a weird business. They have, I'm not, they have to be, have a special ceremony in a Mormon temple. Sometimes your family can't even go to it and they wear odd underwear. I always say that people laugh and they think, what are you talking about? They wear special Mormon underwear and they're sealed, believing that in the afterlife, their marriage will be sealed and that they will repopulate millions of worlds. Now, again, I don't want to be vulgar, but it's all about sex. It's, it's as simple as that. These are exaggerations of what we normally think of when we think about marriage. It, these false religions and weird ideas, are, are, they come from these misconceptions that we have. And so when we think, oh, we're going to be married to Jesus, you think, man, that's weird. But it's not, because marriage is something much higher, much greater, much more involved than anything on a physical plane. Even now, your marriage needs to be more spiritual than it is sensual or sexual. Marriage is an important earthly institution, and we shouldn't mess with it. We should leave it alone the way God intended it for human beings. But it is more than an institution on earth. It is an illustration of the eternal unity God intends with us and for us. In heaven, in a spiritual sense, I will know Jesus as fully as he knows me. And we will know one another perfectly. And we will share an incredible relationship of joy and caring and all of those kinds of things in a way that we can't fully comprehend. And when the people like the Muslims or the Mormons come along and they say, well, how can we how can we make people see how wonderful it is? Oh, let's reduce it to sex because people seem to enjoy that. And that's why we have trouble with it, because we're just carnal and fleshly and we're limited by our bodies and by our world. You will not be married to one another in heaven. Heaven is not an extension of the earth. Now, before we move on, let me make an important application. We get tripped up in this talk about marriage. It's not really the major point that Jesus was making. Because the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, it actually limited their living on earth. Since they were not looking forward to any afterlife or any reward in the afterlife, they lived as if this life were all that mattered. When you live as if this life is all that mattered, you limit yourself because this life is a vapor. It's a puff of smoke that appears for a moment and then vanishes away and then eternity will begin. And the few short moments that you and I have on this earth to 
invest in and get ready for and be preparing for heaven. We don't have time to be limiting ourselves by getting involved in materialistic, sensual pleasures that are are going to be temporary. If this life is all that matters, you will never be satisfied in this life. And you will awaken in the next life to find you have not prepared for it. And so we want to unlimit living, and you do that if you live forward to the resurrection. That's in verses 37 through 44. Now, the Sadducees argued that there were no references to the resurrection in the Old Testament. That was just stupid. You know, sometimes people argue about something, and they're just wrong. Just because somebody has an argument doesn't mean they're right. Some of you have had debating classes or been in debates, and, and sometimes you'll, you know, if you have to take a position in a debate and you argue it, you're hoping that the person doesn't see the flaws in your argument. But a lot of times, if you're big enough or if you have enough bluster or if you're loud enough, I do this by being loud. I just, when I, whenever really, you know, I'm on shaky ground, I just get really loud. And, and, and people will back down. They'll think, oh, well, that, okay. And, and if you think about it, you think, that's the stupidest argument I ever heard. And so they said, well, there's nothing. And they had this one thing that they'd pull out of their arsenal. You know, whenever they'd argue with somebody, they'd say, oh, have you heard the one about the seven dead brothers? And people would back down. And Jesus very simply gives them a couple of illustrations. He could have chosen dozens more, but he said, look, verse 37, even Moses. Now, he picks on Moses because these guys only believe the first five books of the Bible that were written by Moses. He says, well, I can find it in Moses. In fact, not just in his writing, but in his life. He said, Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised because he called the Lord the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were all long dead when God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. God referred to them in the present tense. He was their God right then, not previously before they died and turned to dust. And so Jesus, and I really love this because Jesus is saying, okay, you guys, you want to read Moses? You don't even read Moses. You don't even know what Moses said. Moses believed in the resurrection so much so that he didn't have to really mention it. He mentioned it in passing by telling you that God is the God of the living. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were annihilated at death and were nothing but dust, God could not still be their God. All live to him means that a resurrection is in their future. And then verse 39, some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. Jesus answered their big question. They decided to quit asking him questions. You know, sometimes you will answer a person's big question and they withdraw from you. They don't really want to talk to you anymore. That just proves that they weren't really sincere. They just have this wall that they built up. No one's been able to answer this for them, and so they don't have to be witness to. They don't have to hear about their personal responsibility to trust Jesus Christ. But once you obliterate that wall, once you tear it down piece by piece by answering their question, then they just withdraw because now they're exposed. Now they're out in the light. They have nothing to hide behind. What should you do? Well, Jesus started asking them questions. And I would recommend this since you and I aren't Jesus and there are some tough questions. And even though we can answer them, people act like we really haven't. Then just start asking them questions. And this is another technique Jesus used. We saw it a few weeks ago. They came and asked him a question. He says, well, I'll answer your question, but let me ask you a question first. Well, so what should you ask somebody? Well, here's a great question. Hey, if you were to die tonight, do you know you'd go to heaven? And if so, how do you know that? That's a good question. Because they could die. They will die. That's a pretty good question. And there's only really one answer to that, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so whatever answer they give, 
it's just the wrong answer unless it's to repent and trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. So, you know, people call me all the time and say, you know, Pastor Gene, I can't. They're asking me this and that. I don't know the answer to these questions. And sometimes the questions, they might even be sincere. They might not be. That's okay. There are answers. But even if you give an answer, they don't always accept it. So just... Ask them questions. Just because somebody asks you a question you can't answer right then doesn't mean you're stymied. Just say, hey, well, I'll look into that, but let me ask you a question since we're having this question and answer kind of a thing. Where are you going when you die? And that's a good question, not just because it's so final, but because you have a real confidence about where you're going when you die. You absolutely know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's a sense in which, though we don't look forward maybe to dying, we're not really afraid of death. There are things that, you know, if you think about all the horrible things that could happen and the suffering, I mean, you can develop a fear, but you're not really afraid of death itself because death is an enemy that's been conquered. Once the minute you're dead, the moment you're dead, you're alive in the presence of God. You see Jesus face to face and and that's a confidence, that's a joy that no one can take from you. And when somebody, you know, you ask somebody where they're going to be when they die, and they say, well, what do you think? And you say, I'm the absent from the body and present with the Lord. I want to go there right now. There's a power in that. There's a resurrection power in that that they see, that they lack. And so start asking people questions. Jesus asked the question from the Scripture. Now, what he did is he, he found a Scripture, it's Psalm 110, that they all agreed with. And he tells them what they believed about it, but then he shows them that there's a problem with it that they hadn't really considered. And the only answer is the resurrection. So he says in verse 41, how can they say, and by they, he means the religious leaders, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, whoever they were, they all agreed that the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah is the son of King David, because David himself said in the Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then also his son? And so Jesus calls their attention to this prophecy in Psalm 110. If the Messiah was David's descendant, how could he also be David's Lord? How could he be younger in age? but superior in rank. The only way the Messiah could be both a descendant and the Lord is through a resurrection from the dead that put him over David. And so there will most definitely be a future resurrection from the dead. It only makes sense to live forward to the resurrection. Now, I like that terminology. You can look forward to the resurrection. I think there's a sense in which every Christian looks forward to it. Maybe not excitedly. Maybe you're not every day. Man, I'm so looking forward to it like you would a vacation or something like that. But you can still be looking forward and see that it's going to happen. You can know, oh yeah, there's going to be a time when I either die or am raptured and, and I'm going to be with the Lord. But that's not the same as living forward to it the way you do live forward to your retirement or vacation. How many people I know that are counting down the seconds? They have timers on their computer. Countdowns to their retirement. It's just seconds away. It's, it's like 10 million seconds, but it's just seconds away. you know. And it's kind of cute because you're excited about that. Countdowns to uh, certain movies that you want to go and see or certain events that are going to take place because there's a, a living forward to that. And there's a sense in which you and I should live forward to the resurrection from the dead, to that time that we're with the Lord, whether we uh, die and go to be with the Lord and are awaiting that resurrection or whether he comes to rapture us. There's a living forward to it, a genuine excitement about it. If you are a Christian... You certainly believe in resurrection and reward, but it is still possible to live day by day as if there were no resurrection. It's possible to get caught up in the things of the world. In fact, let me say this. It's almost impossible not to from time to time. It's not that there are certain super spiritual special saints that 
don't ever get caught up in things. All of us need to come under the scrutiny of the word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to research our hearts and to show us in a loving, caring way. Hey, Gene, you're a little bit too involved in the world in this one area. You're living forward too much for things of the world and not enough for the things of God. Why are you continually putting off the things of God as if that weren't a priority? And there's many different ways that the Holy Spirit can minister to us and and talk to us about that. It is possible to for us to limit our living because we're trying to get everything that this world has to offer us. When we really know in our in our most spiritual moments that nothing in this world can compare to just the simple obedience of trusting Jesus Christ and doing what he wants us to do. Yes, we live in the world. No, we don't have to take a vow of voluntary poverty. We live at different, uh, you know, stature and status and all of that. Uh, Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that there needs to be a refocusing all the time in our hearts towards eternity. Living forward or if we're going to look, let's look backward upon our life from a point of view that is this where I want to be when the Lord comes back. And it's very powerful. It's very motivating. It's very freeing. The world grows strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. And I want to serve him more and more because of what he's done for me. If you've not received Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of your sins... The resurrection of Jesus Christ should trouble you. In the very first sermon of the church age, the apostle Peter got up and quoted from this very same psalm. And he applied it to their lives. It's in Acts chapter 2 where Peter said, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says of himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made Jesus Whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. In other words, Jesus rose from the dead. He is alive in heaven and he is returning. And that makes a difference. Makes a difference in my individual life because Peter says he is the one you crucified. Now, there's always an argument. It gets into an ethnic argument all the time. Uh, as to whether or not the Jews or the Romans crucified Jesus. And, and it's, it's, I remember a few years ago when the Passion of the Christ movie came out, there was all this hoopla to do about, you know, who, what was it really saying and was it racial and all this kind of stuff. Who crucified Jesus? Was it the Jews who wanted him killed or was it ultimately the Romans who had him killed? The truth is what Peter says It wasn't really just to the Jews, although his audience was Jewish at that time. And and you've heard this, and it's really true. We need to hear it again. You and I crucified Jesus, and here's why. The cross was necessary because of sin. God, before the foundation of the world, looking down the corridors of history before anyone was ever created, and he understood that there would be a problem, sin, And that it would require the death of the Son of God to alleviate that problem so that we could have forgiveness and come back into a relationship with Him. And so, maybe you didn't hammer the nails, maybe you're not Jewish or Roman, but Jesus died on the cross and was crucified because of you and I, because we are born with sin. Take sin away, you have no need for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But sin is a reality. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, not even one of us. And so in a very real sense, everyone ever conceived, everyone ever born, every human being born into sin is the reason Jesus Christ was crucified. And so by extension, we crucified him. He did it for us that we might live forever. You will experience a resurrection. You know, earlier in this text, when Jesus is talking about the resurrection, he says those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection. And literally, it's from out of the dead. 
There is a resurrection from out of the dead. And what that means is believers are going to be raised first out from all of the dead from all the ages. Why are they accounted worthy? Is it because of their works? Is it because of something they did? It's because of one work, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And what they did was believe that and have their sins forgiven. And so if you're a Christian, you are raised out from among the dead. And you spend eternity with the Lord in heaven. But if you're not a Christian, you are still going to be raised from the dead. The remaining dead are all raised at one time to one place. It's called the great white throne judgment of God. You can read about it in the book of Revelation. And you don't want to be there. Because if you're there... You're there because you never trusted Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. And and though I can't really get a full handle on it because it's so immense, people will have no argument. They'll have no excuse. They will know that they have blown their only chance at salvation. They will know that they deserve eternal punishment. You know, I've said before, and it's, it's true, I love to officiate at funerals i don't have a morbid fascination with death but people die and it's a great opportunity to preach the gospel sometimes the people who have died though i you know i never say this because you can't ever be a hundred percent sure but many times you're pretty pretty sure that they died in unbelief that they didn't know christ as their savior Maybe something in their last moments, maybe in a coma, maybe they cried out to the Lord, I can't say. But there have been times when I wish I could look down at the deceased in their coffin and say, your loved one has been annihilated. They'll never exist again. Their consciousness, their soul, nothing exists of them but your memory of them. And that too will be wiped out one day. Because annihilation would comfort people. But the Bible doesn't teach annihilation. It teaches resurrection. Resurrection of the just and resurrection of the unjust. If you're not a Christian, Jesus rose from the dead so that you could live forever with him in heaven. But you are going to live forever. And if it's not with him, the only other destination is hell. Where you will suffer for your own sins. He took your sins with him on the cross so that you didn't have to do that and so if you're not a believer or if let me ask you right now if you were to die right now do you know that you would go to heaven if you can't honestly confidently say yes you need the lord before it's too late we're going to give you a chance to do that this morning let's pray together father we do thank you this morning for the simplicity of your answers to these men. You know, men, Lord, think that they have such tremendous arguments to level against you. They think of us, your followers, as simpletons that have checked our brains at the door. And yet, Lord, just because all of the arguments and answers are simple doesn't make them simplistic. The things you told us in your word are true. They either bring life or they leave us in our sins, Lord. And I just want to pray for those this morning who have given their hearts to you. I thank you, Lord, that there was a time in my life and in their lives when maybe at a church service or watching a television program or just talking with a Christian friend, maybe even just reading a tract or the Bible itself, your spirit illuminated to them the understanding that they were sinners on their way to hell. But more than that, that they had a Savior who loved them and died for them and rose from the dead for them to offer them life, an abundant life, an unlimited life, both here and in eternity. And I thank you for the joy of your salvation that you've given us. But Lord, in a group like this, there's always one or several who don't know you. They don't want to die today. They don't want to die anytime soon. And I pray that they wouldn't, Lord, but they could. No one knows the day or the hour but you. And and Lord, I 
I want them to just be honest with themselves today. That's all we're asking is that there would be an honesty and that they would say, I don't know what's going to happen to me. I don't know what I'm trusting in if something were to happen to me. I just want to get out of here so I don't have to think about it. Lord, I pray that your spirit would have his way of working in their hard hearts, of breaking their hearts open so that they would want to reach out and receive the forgiveness of sins that only is available to them through Jesus Christ. And that as we sing and pray now to end our service, Lord, they would be changed from death to life, from darkness to light as they reach out to receive you as their Savior. Thank you, Lord. We're going to continue in prayer. Keep your head bowed and your eyes closed. Sing a chorus. If you're a Christian, maybe you brought somebody to church today or maybe you know somebody here who's not a Christian. Uh, Just pray for that person right now that the Lord would have a a way in in that person's heart, a work to do. And if you're here and, and you know that you're not a believer or you're not sure or maybe you're even just completely backslidden, you're not really even walking with the Lord. When we're done singing here in a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand and just ask the Lord to save you. Scripture says that His arm is not so short that it cannot reach us, but our sin has separated us from Him. So sometimes we ask people to raise their hand just to acknowledge that they're reaching out to and reaching up to God. And in that moment, that release of their faith, saying, Lord, save me. See me, Lord, and save me. And so let's sing quietly, pray for those that are around you, that God would minister His salvation here in this place today, for His glory, for His sake. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. The Lord was picturing having a relationship with him as if he was knocking at the door of your house. You opening it up, letting him come in so that you could share together with him. Only the house that he's talking about is your life, it's your heart. And he's here knocking this morning. He's knocking by the word of God that we've read and studied. He's knocking by the gentle spirit of our worship. He's knocking by speaking directly to your heart using these elements. If the Lord is knocking on the door of your heart, why wouldn't you open it? Why wouldn't you let him in and have eternal life flood and fill your soul? Nothing can satisfy you other than a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The Bible says that He has placed eternity in your heart. It's a place that only He can occupy, only He can fill. So let me ask you this morning, and we're going to close with this. Do you want to know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Will you reach out to Him by raising your hand right now? I know that there are unbelievers in this place. It makes me almost want to cry to think that you're going to leave here having wasted this opportunity to come to know the Lord what could possibly be more important than having your sins forgiven than knowing that when you died whether it's today or 20 years from now should the Lord wait 
that you will be in heaven with him and all those that you love. I'll give you this one last opportunity. You don't know how many more that you'll have, but you have this one right now. Will you raise your hand and ask Jesus Christ to save you? Anyone at all before we close? Anyone at all? Father, I'm so grieved, Lord, because you came to seek and to save those which are lost. And the lost that are here, Lord, are resisting you. But we know, Lord, that your word is powerful and doesn't return void. It accomplishes its purpose. We just don't always know exactly what the purpose is when it will come to fruition. Lord, I just want to end without giving anyone here a false hope. I don't know if they'll ever have another chance to receive you, Lord. Life is so tragic. It's full of evil. And so, Lord, I just commit them to you and I ask that the words that you've spoken to them today, not my words, not the words of our songs, but the words that you have spoken from your word and by your spirit, would begin to resonate in their hearts and begin to break their hearts from within so that they would receive you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. Let's stand together. Some of the guys from our church will be here after the service. And they'd love to pray with you. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. You wanted to raise your hand or you know that you should. Come and talk with those guys. We're not going to ask you to join our church. We, no one belongs to our church. We don't have membership. So it's not about anything on this earth. It's about eternity. And so if you're not a Christian or you're just not sure what would happen to you if you died, come and talk. Maybe you just need prayer this morning or you want to share a praise report. The guys would love to share with you as well. May God bless and keep you in Jesus' name. Amen. Might be today. It might be today I look into your eyes. Might be today I see your face. It might be today you place your wounded hand on my distant face. Have a great week, Steve.